Welcome to the Real Triathlon Podcast. I'm your host, Garrick Lowen, here with Nicholas Chase and Jackson Lund. Welcome back to the Real Triathlon Podcast. Today, we have uh, a very famous guest, actually. She spends a lot of time commentating and on TV. It is uh, Didi Griesbauer. She's also a two-time world champion in the Ultraman distance and the current world record holder. So pretty excited for that. Um, Nick, I know you know Didi decently well. So <laughs> thanks for hooking us up and getting us on, getting her on here. Well, I'd love to say that I have a really close relationship with her because she's so cool. I've just only seen her in passing and she's commentated on a few things I've done through Ironman and she's certainly seen Jackson racing as well. Probably when he won Oceanside, I wonder if she was on it during that race. But <clears throat> Didi has just been almost like on everyone's mind. Um, every topic, she's it's like six shades to Didi Griesbauer. Like everyone's connected to her. Everyone knows her. And she's kind of an iconic aspect of our sport, especially as she's, you know, aged out of typical Olympic and half distance racing. She's gone into full distance and obviously Ultraman um, just crushing it. Hell yeah. And I think we should mention <clears throat> to be competitive still, like very competitive at the level she's at, in her fifties. I mean, and she's one of the strongest cyclists in the women's side. Every time she races, like it's pretty incredible. Um, so that's going to be awesome to hear from her, how she's been able to maintain such a high level and be so strong um, through so many years in the sport. And she's in commentating. Like she's really, you know, she's very heavily involved in the sport and I would really love to hear her perspective. <laughs> but before we get into that, what has been going on with you guys? I feel like it's been forever since all three of us have been on together. Probably usually is. Um, that's just the way it kind of rolls around here. Yeah. A shitload of things have been happening. So yeah. Nick got a new coach. He dumped our beloved James. <laughs> Damn it. It's not well, like just Garrick and I holding on after 10, 11 years. <laughs> Still same coach. Well, that's, that's great. I mean, nope, no problem with that. It's nothing against James. I love James. I just needed someone who could like look me in the eye hole here and there. And James is all the way in Ontario. So that's the only main reason you need to do okay. that. That's got to, James has to be the longest coach you've ever had. Cause you had him for almost like three seasons. Yeah. I mean, great results took me from barely being competitive in the last quarter of the race to being really competitive in the last quarter of the race. And, then I'm, you know, changed up my lifestyle and lost all kinds of everything and focus and wasn't his fault or anything. I mean, it's all athlete lifestyle stuff that usually make the athlete. So that's why I was like, I just going to do something. Maybe I could have some Norwegian magic now. <laughs> so you hired, um, what's his name? Um, Roberto DiCardo. Oh, Roberto DiCardo. Yeah. The famous. <laughs> So what kind of, how's your training changed um, since that's happened? A lot. So typically this time of year, I'll do what you two are doing, which is a lot more threshold. Um, but now it's a lot more of the, I would say, European style of approach where you ride pretty low effort. Like my aerobic engine, we decided through all the lactate testing through 
swim, bike, and run lactate testing. We've sent all those results to Jan Ulrich, and he's deciphered kind of what I need to do. And Robbie then uses all that based on his knowledge to determine where my weak areas are. So my VO2 capacity, I mean, I've got a high VO2, but training that capacity was really a lacking area for me. So that's why when I would get to that fast pace, I'd just kind of lose it and blow up. But now we're just working on all that stuff. So it's all good. Uh, but we'll get into a lot more of what's going on in us. We got Dee Greasebauer coming on the show. Let's bring her on. So we have the famous Dee Greasebauer here now with us. Uh, Dee, as you know, like we don't talk a lot on this show. So we thought bringing in like a specialist who knows how to talk for about a 10 hour broadcast would be great. So that's why <laughs> you're here. So you guys just don't want to do your job. You want to drop the bike and run away. So I will carry the show for the next 45 minutes. Zero percent problem. I gotcha. I I gotcha. Like what what's our topic? Let me know what our topic is and I can make it work for 45 minutes. Ready? Uh, go. There's we, we need more. We need multiple topics. We know you could go on just talking about probably soup for like <laughs> yeah. 45 minutes. I mean, OK, this is this is an honest to God, true story. The first time I did commentary and I'm going to take you back. It was the first year of Ironman Melbourne. And I don't remember what year that was. It's going to be like 2013, maybe 2014, maybe 2012. I don't know. Somebody has to, somebody has to dig on data on that. But <laughs> first year, first year of Ironman Melbourne, I had been in Australia doing a training camp and was planning to race Melbourne. I pulled up with a stress fracture in my sacrum while in Australia, which was a bummer. Wasn't going to be able to race. But at the same time, I had gotten on board a travel sponsor. It was a small travel agency. I was still living in Boston and he had booked all my travel so I rang him up and I was like, dude, bad news. I have a stress fracture. I'm not going to be able to travel to Melbourne to do the race. Can you just change my ticket to fly home? He's like, um, no, you have to go to Melbourne. <laughs> I was like, but I'm not racing. He's like, well, there's lots of sites to see. So <laughs> long story short, my husband flew to Australia to have me not race. And we were in Melbourne. And our cycle went something from morning coffee shop to as soon as the bars opened, we hit the bars because there was nothing else for me to do. But it was a big race and they actually invited me. They were doing commentary and they invited me to join the commentary team. It's the very first time I had done commentary. So Greg Welsh was there doing commentary and I was going to provide some sort of help to Greg. And we get to where we're doing commentary from and they have some massive technical failure where none of the timing mats are updating. So he has essentially nothing to commentate about. And I sat there and I watched the man speak for literally 10 hours. And, and my husband and I joked after the fact because he was there with me. He actually built a tracker on an Excel spreadsheet and had aid station captains call in timing splits so that we had dynamic timing to create data that we could then analyze splits and have something to talk about. But while that was all happening, I sat in Marvel of Greg Welch, who I, I literally said, and it's funny you said soup, because our reference was you could have put a bottle of ketchup in front of Greg and said, Greg, here's a bottle of ketchup. Let's discuss. And 10 hours later, Greg would have wrapped up. And that's all I have to say about ketchup. <laughs> literally, the man can talk for 10 hours about absolutely nothing at all. And it's, it's hard to do. It's really hard to do. Thankfully, technology has gotten better. So 
usually we have splits and things to talk about. <laughs> usually, but not always. Usually, but not always. Yes. And that's why we revert to catch up every now and then. So, so Didi, you've obviously have a large voice within the commentary of most all Iron Man broadcasts um, that I've even watched it because normally I'm checking in. Um, maybe how, how many are you doing a year now? Uh, it depends a little bit on my race schedule. I think this year they actually sent me my race schedule and my eyes got pretty big. I think I have 14 races this year. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a hefty commitment, but I love it. I really, really, I love it. And I take it incredibly seriously. I think it's a really important job and that's why I take it seriously. I want to not only share my love of the sport, which is enormous, um, I want to make other people excited about the sport and, and sort of create that passion and, and sort of incite that passion within others. And then I am so inspired by a large majority of the professionals in our field that when we are getting to share their stories, I think it's really, really important to give them the credit that they deserve because they're doing incredible things and, and it inspires me and I want others to therefore be inspired. So yeah, I, I take it very, very seriously and I, I love the job. So real quick, why, if you could capture in a, in a paragraph, why do you love triathlon so much? And it's been, a, you've had, a, you've never lost that love. It seems like since your inception, what's kept you going? Oh, I've come close. I've come close <laughs> a number of times. It's too hard not to. I mean, I've had a lot of catastrophes along the way that have really and truly tested my love of the sport. I think what brings me back, and I don't know, particularly in this day and age, because people seem to be coming to triathlon younger and younger. They seem to be moving up to Ironman younger and younger. Look at our podiums from the Ironman World Championship this year. Yeah. I mean, they're barely old enough to buy a beer and they're, you know, on the podium at the Ironman World Championship. So they're getting younger, you know, younger and younger. But what I think what brings me back and what makes my appreciation so strong is that I've lived a different life. I've had a different job with different stresses, with different demands. And I chose this. And I realize that every single day I get up and I am so grateful to get to do this instead of the other thing. And the other thing paid me so much more money. But I had this realization that I was not on a healthy path in my life. I had ulcers from the stress and I wasn't that old. And I just looked around at the people that I was working with and I said, those priorities were just different than what mine were. And the whole reason I chose my career path in the first place. So I went to graduate school. Um, I got my MBA at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And a lot of my business school classmates made fun of me because when I chose my career path, I chose the trading desk. And traders historically, back in the day and back in the probably the 70s and 80s, you did not even need a college degree to be a trader. It's Wolf of so Wall Street would, stuff. Yeah, Wall Street. Yeah, 100% Wall Street. So I, I worked for two years for an investment bank in New York realized that Manhattan was not for me. And we, we moved up to Boston and I worked for a mutual fund company up there. But so I chose the trading desk because it offered me a balance, right? I, I, I wasn't, I knew I wasn't cut out for hundred hour work weeks and monstrous travel and no personal life. And just this, like I have a tremendous work ethic, but I also know I need balance. 
Um, so I, I chose trading because it would offer me that balance, but the stress and then the, the motivation and the priorities weren't, I just, I learned they weren't in line. And so when someone suggested I was doing triathlon sort of as a, as a hobby, I had tripped into it sideways. And, and when my first coach suggested that I quit my job and race professionally, I just knew in my gut, I was like a hundred percent, this is what I want to do. And we are so much poorer, but we're so much healthier and happier for it. So I think my passion comes from the fact that I've seen a different life and I've seen a different side to myself that I didn't necessarily like. Um, when I worked on Wall Street, I like, I, can I swear on this podcast? I was kind of a bitch. That's like people- I swear often. I was, I was a bitch. Like I had a reputation of being a hardcore bitch. And- it was great. It got me great execution and, and whatnot, but I went home at the end of the day and I just didn't even like myself. I just, I didn't. And so it's funny now because I, I like, I, I think kindness is really important. And I think my reputation is more important to me than any kind of race result. I would rather be known for being a, a good and honest competitor and a friendly person and a supportive person and an advocate of the sport and an advocate for, you know, my competitors, et cetera, et cetera. That is way more important to me than a lot of other things probably should be. Wait, and when so I look you would, at, would you put all that? I, above? Went, I went, I went from being a hardcore bitch to being like this little lamb who's like, Oh, are you okay? Let me help you in any way possible. Even if it's to my own detriment, like, and I don't know how that happened, but I didn't like who I was when I worked on wall street. And now and so I, do you have and a now, I, I don't have a TikTok account. I, I don't. <laughs> And you talk about like, we're, we're going to spend some time talking about changes in the sport. And that is one thing that I, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around. I, Cody Beals announced a couple of weeks ago that he was going on TikTok. And I literally sent him a message. I was like, Cody, no. Like, you're so one Jackson, of the good ones. Jackson's here too. <laughs> I was like, Cody, you're one of the good ones. Don't go there. And he responded to me. He's like, I know, I know it's against the grain but the sponsors want it and I was like oh my god TikTok and so I actually have this running joke with my massage therapist now that we have to learn how to dance and she's sending me all these hilarious reels of these like 90 year old women with fanny packs on like doing these like <laughs> crazy dances and she's like we're gonna send our we're gonna spend our next massage session like learning this dance so we can put it on your first TikTok video and and I it, it's where the sport is going it just is so I feel like an old person, but I, guys, I am an old person. Well, let's be like, honest. For it's, all intents and purposes. Terrible. TikTok it, it, is like terrible. I, Social media is kind of terrible. And it's just a it's, thing we have to do. It's where, it's where we're going. But that's the thing. It's, I think in this day and age, and the thing I shake my head about is that there are some athletes that are turning in some really great results, but because their social media isn't, TikTok worthy and they don't have 50,000 followers on Instagram, they're not sponsored in the same balance as their performance as athletes. And it, it's Nip. really coming. <laughs> well, I mean, Taylor, I think Taylor's pretty well taken care of, but well, I mean, I mean she because is, the but she's not on, she, I haven't seen her do any dances. What's up with that? No, she, she, she has yet to dance. And <laughs> we, we, we might be working on a duet together here in, in Boulder. I don't want yeah. to disclose guys, but watch this space. Can we just coming? kill the dance thing like no you don't actually is not nobody has to fucking dance tiktok's but, but not have... only dances 
You don't have to dance. Like, look at all the best pros. None of them are dancing on TikTok. None of them. Okay, they're not. They're not dancing. Okay, I will give you that. They're not dancing. We are embellishing a little bit, but you essentially have to run your own media company. Yes, right? you that have I to run with. your own media company and be creating this content with your own personal videographer. Your husband has to be your your spouse, your partner, your supporter. Your parents have to be professional photographers slash videographers to create this content for you that you can fill this social media space. And I, I, from a business perspective, and here's where my brain actually starts to explode inside. From a business perspective, like my MBA brain turns on. And for a long time, I actually had this debate with a lot of sponsors. I was like, you guys have no idea why you sponsor me. Like this is going back 15 years when I was actually, when I was getting good you know, contracts. I was like, can you explain the difference why you sponsor me versus why you sponsor? And I'm just going to pick on him because he's my co-commentator. And we came up through the sport together. Michael Lovato. What is the difference between Didi Griesbauer and Michael Lovato? You guys don't actually know, right? And they didn't. And now social media is enabling them to say, now we know the difference between Didi Griesbauer and Paula Finley, right? Paula and, and Eric are crushing it on the content side and she's incredibly talented as is he, but they're doing all of the right things on the media side, but it puts an awful lot of pressure on an athlete like Taylor Nib, who's incredibly talented. She's what, 24, maybe 25 years old, has an incredible future, but doesn't yet have a media team behind her. And if she doesn't get that media team, it's gonna get harder and harder for her to get those deals on racing alone. So it's it's a little bit troubling for the sport in general that it is almost becoming a little bit more heavy representation on the story you tell and how you can kind of whittle your way into the lives of others through social influence. Now, when I think of other professional sports, let's say since NBA is a hot topic, you don't see a lot of those guys doing the same thing. But the problem is we're not on we're not being talked about on ESPN on national yeah. broadcasting. So we we are in a position to have to beg, borrow, and plead to tell this story, to get influence, which is such a terrible thing outside of results alone. And this is the culture we have all created for ourselves. It is, but here's the other thing. And I look at it, I try to look at it on the positive side as well, because Lord knows I've been around the sport long enough to know that, that um, <laughs> well, number one, I was paid a lot more on Wall Street. It is incredibly hard to earn a living doing this sport, right? It is incredibly hard to earn a living. And we, we can debate till the cows come home what it even means to be a professional, right? Like, are you a professional if you are not paying your bills on triathlon alone? And, and to that argument, if that is your definition of being a professional, none of us are even really professional because there's just not enough money in the sport. We all side hustle, right? We all side hustle. So I look at it as a positive that all of these other ways, if you're great on the YouTube and your YouTube channel is crushing it and your race results aren't necessarily in line with your YouTube, but your social media following is such, you can now pay your bills as a YouTuber and not necessarily as a professional triathlete. So it is increasing opportunities for revenue in the sport, yeah. just not rewarding the results from pure racing. Well, which I still, then you, you I have think to figure still that out what you feel though. about that. Those, those results are still still getting pretty rewarded. I mean, Jackson, you can attest. I mean, you've had, out of all our whole team on RTS, you're the most successful in terms of podiums and wins, I, su- I suspect. 
Yeah, um, and your social media is shit. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So what's so what's going to happen to you? Right. Well, here's Do you the feel thing. that pressure. Here's the thing. So there's, I've noticed in the last couple of years since the PTO has come into the game that people who are like in my position of like doing well, not top in the world, but you know, close to that level where you can start to like string together a few podiums a year, get into the PTO opens, do pretty well at worlds. You're actually, I've, I've personally decided I'm better off putting everything into my results right now because still like two thirds of my income is at least is prize money It's prize money and PTO like payouts. That PTO so, money has got to be a game changer though. Without it's a total them. game changer because without let, that, let me I ask you this. half as much probably. But let me ask you this, Jackson, do you have, do you wake up in the middle of the night with night sweats worrying that the PTO money is going to walk away? Um, no, because I still live like I make half as much as I do. So I would okay. be fine, but I'm, I'm still planning on like, cause that could happen. And so right. the goal is, to, so this is where like the big separation in the sport happens. There's people who make enough to then hire a team of people or even just one person to do all their social media, who does a great yep. job. And then they don't have to stress about it. So their results probably get even better and right. their social media gets even better and everything just gets raised up. So like, that's the goal for me really like i don't have like you can ask these guys i am the worst multitasker in the world i'm constantly behind on everything except for training and recovery so right. i i need like i'm not that person like nick who can do 65 things and he's trying to pare down so he can focus on his results but still i just get behind on stuff and so if i could afford that even someone do to work 10 hours a week for me to do all that stuff and pay them whatever that would be 20 grand a year 15 whatever it is then that would be like game changing for, for that. That the problem is then finding the right person, training them, like it's not all easy. But when you look at Lucy Charles and it's like, whoa, she does an amazing job. She does, but she has help because she can afford yes. it. Yeah. And and that's the big problem. So you're wise to be the little squirrel who's putting his nuts in the tree, you know, if and, and I only say it and and you know, I I, I cheer for the PTO and I hope it works, but I've been around the sport long enough to know that we've had large um, capital investments from other interested parties in the past that have come, they've lasted a few years and then they've just gotten disinterested and gone away. They've all tried to do the same thing. Like the sport has so many diehard fans and I consider myself one of them that really think it deserves the respect that maybe not the NBA, we're getting a little crazy, but other big sports have, and we just don't, we just don't get it. And a lot of people with a lot of money think, hey guys, this is wrong. Let's try to make it happen. But if I'm going to be the naysayer, the PTO is one in a long line of people who have come in with a huge cash inflow. And my concern is that in a few years it dries up and they don't get the results. They don't get the ROI. And these guys are smart business guys. And after a while, it just starts to look like throwing good money after bad and, and it walks away. And but I worry that it's not sustainable. The, the race series in itself seems to be the only major difference. Like, has there been another major investment firm company or whatever that's put on this? Because it seems like PTO is there to take care of the professional athletes to grow that to a level where it's maybe more of a household sport where before it wasn't. And it, I still think we've got tremendous mountain to climb on that. However, making it more accessible for the PTO events to almost be a light competition with the major 
ownership of our sport, which is Ironman. It seems like the dates that they've chosen their races might be, you know, putting things in question. Well, they're trying, they're definitely trying to, but they're also having a hard time sustaining it, right? The race in Canada, not going to happen this year because they can't get the financial backing, you know, from the whatever government entity or community entity, they can't get the financial buy-in from the, from the local authority. So they haven't, Ironman's had the same struggle, but they have the infrastructure to withstand that. So if they cancel a race, they can pop another one up in an instant because they, they have the model, right? They have it down packed. Like, yeah. This is this is how we do it. This is A, B, C, D, and E. This is a script for how to put on a race in a place you've never put on a race before. You pop it up. You see if it works. If it does, you stick it. If it doesn't, you, you cut it down. From what I've seen with the PTO, and again, we only have, what, a, a year, maybe a soft two years of, of data to go on, but they're not getting the traction. They're not getting the repeat customers in the same venues. Um, and, and so it'll be interesting to see if they, they can do that or if they just have an unlimited supply of venues that they can then go to, that they don't need repeat customers. We don't need to go back to Edmonton over and over again, because we can go to these 15 other places that are, that will be happy to have us. That is to be determined. So, I mean, that's the thing, like I, I get from a business perspective and I spend a fair amount of time thinking about this because I really, I want to make Ironman because it is the most stable financial platform we have in triathlon. I want to make it better for the pros and I want to desperately figure out a way to make that relationship better and people bash Ironman and yes, the prize money sucks and blah, 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 blah. And we don't get the same opportunities that the PTO is offering the pros, which is why the pros are all going to the PTO. I get it. But what Ironman has right now is as a, a sustainable business model, right? It's a sustainable business model. And right now, I think if you look at the financials of the PTO, that is not sustainable. Might it be in time? That's what we're all hoping for. And that's what I am 100% cheering for. But their business model right now is not sustainable. Yeah, I can't decide if they were going to be more of a multimedia company or if they were going to be a race organization. And now it seems like they're doing a bit of both on a big scale. But is our sport, this comes down to a question I have a hard time answering pretty often is like, is our sport actually something the general public will care about a little bit more than they do right now? And the answer is, I don't know. Is it the only ones who participate in the sport are the only ones who really care about it? Cause I don't play football. I don't really, I play basketball just now with my 12 year old and I'm terrible, but I'll watch, <laughs> I'll watch the playoffs and I'll watch the championships no matter what, just cause I feel like I respect sport enough to do that. So I hope eventually we could get those same demographics to respect watching a broadcast of a championship Ironman event, because that is really where the money is. It is. And the funny thing too, and this is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about and how much of it comes in concert with local triathlon, right? You look at local triathlon. And if we talk about the evolution of the sport, when I got into the sport, literally 20 years ago, you guys were all still in short pants. But when I got into the, sh- the sport 20 years ago, short pants, they're what like toddler boys wear and before they get to trousers. It's like, a, it's, a, it's a British thing. They're I still wear pants. them, I guess. <laughs> it's like with your suit, you wear like, you know, short pants and your suit jacket. It's, if you look at like toddlers, they're, they're short. Yeah, whatever. Garrett they don't wear trousers. Diapers. They wear short pants. Yeah. So you guys Nixon were all diapers, too young to know this. But that's because he's but... 70. 
<laughs> but the, lo the local triathlon scene was a lot more robust, right? Like you mm -hmm. could fill out your season with a couple of like with local tries and, and some of them, some of them even had prize money, like not a ton, but you could win 500 bucks for winning an Olympic distance race, driving 30 minutes from your home. Like the, the local triathlon scene was a lot more robust. And I think the mom and pop triathlons are really are suffering. And, and I don't, I'm not involved enough with USAT to know why that is, but I almost feel like to your point, you don't play basketball, you play with your 12 year old, but you still know what it's like to go out and yeah, you dribble and you, you, you head fake and you, you slam dunk on the mini net. People know golf, right? They go, maybe they don't play, they don't actually go out and play golf, but they go to golf tech or whatever it is where you can go hit balls or they play mini golf. So when golf's on TV, they can appreciate how hard it is or how when they go out, they feel like they can be, you know, Tiger Woods swinging driver. I wonder if we could improve the health of the local triathlon scene Ooh. so that so that you didn't have to do an Ironman to feel like you were a triathlete. I love right? that so you concept. Could, you could go out and race a sprint triathlon and you're like, I know what it's like when I'm in transition and oh my gosh, I can't clip in. And so when I watch Lucy Charles stuff T2 at whatever the race was a couple of years ago, I think it was Daytona when she face planted in T2, I did that same thing. And all of a sudden there's that point where they can relate. But I think the death of local triathlon is hurting the professionals in a way that you're not going to get people to get off the couch because they can't find a local triathlon to see what it's all about. And right? they're expensive. Like, like even the local series are like 150 bucks to do a little race. And, and they're poorly supported. They don't have aid stations. They run out of water. People have bad experiences. Yeah. So I kind of wonder to that point, you know, if it to make it relatable to people like on a more, I won't even say mass level because I'll just sound like an idiot because I don't think we're ever going to get to that level. But on a more popular level, if triathlon was more accessible to more people, would the pros be more inspiring because people can be like, oh yeah, I remember when I dropped my bottle at whatever, whatever, or when I cramped or when I threw up. And so then when they see Lionel, you know, you know, depositing his race nutrition at mile 17 at Coeur d'Alene, they'll be like, oh my God, I did that very same thing. That creates that connection that I think is stronger. And so I think that goes a long way as well, but we're not addressing that to make it more relatable to, you know, Joe who goes out and does his, you know, sprint triathlon on his mountain bike. And now he knows what Lionel Sanders feels like. Like it just, that connection is lost. I, yeah, I think professional athletes have a lot more responsibility to the sport than I think we also do. And I think that's also because we're a type and we, we have to sit in our bubble and we have to focus on the body and the mind at all times. But I can say living in St. George, Utah, the local tri community here just had a huge opening kickoffs party. And there was like a couple hundred members. When I came here three years ago, there was like 30 to 40 in a room. So I think it's getting back there and it's up and it was a big deal that me and Matt Russell were there two two good members of the pro community showing up to show support for a local tri club. I know Sky Monch does the same thing up in uh, Salt Lake city. She'll go out and support the community. So I think us being out there being accessible will continue to inspire those because, and we don't think about this, even Didi, you've probably get this all the time. 
people can't comprehend how we go so fast for that long because they're doing half that and they're doing everything they know how to do that already. So it's yeah. unfathomable. And to us, we're like, still not as fast as goose off. So fuck my yeah. life. <laughs> I'm never going to make it. But I think you're right. Like Bob Babbitt has a great viewpoint on this. He's trying to make triathlon accessible by like, you don't like swimming that much. Well, here's a, a flamingo floaty. Go paddle around on that through the course, have fun, get it done. You got a mountain bike. There was a, during COVID, in Utah, they had this triathlon called the Doughboy Triathlon of all things. Like you're on course, you don't know where you're going besides some chalk and you swim, there's floaties. There was a dude in like this full body suit with bubble wrap, like that kept it fun. And I think it also helps grow the sport. So I think that's, it, that's an amazing point. Um, but before we go too much further down that route, Didi, I still want to talk to you about your professional career specifically and how it's evolved just in these past couple of years, specifically you've had great Ironman results, still amazing. And then what is it like to do Ultraman? How was that crew situation like, and that race that we all hear about and see that you've set a world record, but really don't have a lot of perspective on. Yeah, I think um, Ultraman certainly so I was introduced to Ultraman by Hillary Biscay. Um, for those that don't know, Hillary is a retired uh, professional um, triathlete, uh, married to Mike Twelsick, who is a German retired professional triathlete. Bike used to ride the maniac. yeah, yeah, used to ride the snot out of a bike. Like I, I love Mike Twelsick. He is one of my all-time favorite people. So soft-spoken, but such a freaking beast on the bike. Like he's he's monstrous. Anyway. They are now married. Uh, Hillary, they're both retired. Um, Hillary um, founded an apparel brand called Smash, uh, Smash Fest Queen. Um, and it all started, they were all um, coached by uh, Brett Sutton, a uh, big group of, of women. Um, and they always used to have these monster training days where Brett would drop them like in another country in Europe and be like, okay, ladies, now you're going to ride home. And, and that would be it. Like they would have these like 500 mile ride days and be like, okay, we're just going to smash it. And this is our smash fest. And, and that was sort of the birth of her brand. Um, and she always used to do these monstrous epic training days and, and call them smash fests. And she found Ultraman. And I went to stay with Hillary and Mike when they lived in Tucson. I was living in Boston at the time and I was trying to escape winter and I went out and trained with them for a few weeks. Um, and Hillary was going, had just raced Ultraman, won the world title out at Ultraman World Championship, and was going to do a talk at a tri shop in Tucson uh, about her experience at Ultraman. And she's like, do you want to come? And I was like, eh, not really. She's like, they're going to have free snacks. And I was like, oh, I'm on board. Let's go. <laughs> so I went and sat in the back and was enjoying the free snacks. And she started talking about Ultraman. And my, I, I like, I, I couldn't even eat. I was just, I was gobsmacked. I was, it was the same way listening to Hillary talk about Ultraman was the, I got the exact same feeling in my gut that I got when I turned on the TV when I was in business school at Wharton and saw the Iron Man. I just couldn't believe it. And part of me was like, I think I can do that, but I'm not sure, but I know I have to try. And, and so when well, I, when know, I saw you the, would hold the world record for it. <laughs> well, when I saw the, when I saw the Iron Man on TV, I was like, I have got to try that. Like, I just think that is something I could be good at. And I heard Hillary talk about Ultraman and I was like, 
it scares the crap out of me, but I think I could be good at that and I have to try. But it took, Ultraman is a massive commitment. It is a super duper massive commitment. And, um, oh shoot, hang on one second. Um, it takes a really big commitment. And so it took me several years to muster up the courage to even sign up. Um, and so I finally signed up. I did Ultraman Florida in 2020. Um, so for those that don't know, Ultraman is three days. Hang on one second. I'm just plugging my phone in so I don't die. I was um, like, she's, she's either got to pull something out of the oven or has to use the bathroom real fast. No, no. <laughs> we're old people. We ate at five o'clock. We ate on the blue plate special. We ate the blue hair special because I knew I had this coming up. Sorry. I just, I got the low battery and I got nervous. So I had to get out of the love sack and here I am. Um, so it's, it's, <laughs> it's three days, 320 miles. So day one is a 10 K swim. That's 6.2 miles and a 91 mile bike. Day two is we'll just say 171 plus or minus a few miles, depending on road closures, because that's just the way Ultraman rolls. Um, and then day three is a double marathon. Um, so all in Hawaii we talked about well, no, you have to qualify. So the world championship is in Hawaii, as oh, yeah. is the Ironman. Well, was we can get to that too. The <laughs> Ironman World Championship. <laughs> um, the world championship is in Hawaii, but they do require that you qualify. So I tried to talk my way in. I was like, oh guys, here I'm a professional triathlete. Here's my race resume. Can I just come to the world championship? Can I just bypass that qualifying standard? They're like, no. They are hardcore about their rules and God bless them for it. So every athlete who participates at the Ultraman World Championship has to qualify at another Ultraman. And there's only like five or six Ultramans around the world. There's one in Brazil, uh, there's Florida, there's Arizona, there's Canada, there's one in Australia. Um, I think there used to be one in Europe, but I don't know that that still exists. Anyway, so you have to qualify at, at another race. Um, in order to go to the Ultraman world. So I signed up for Ultraman Florida and raced there in 2020. Luckily, literally, we got the race in. I We got home from Ultraman, and a week later, the world changed forever. So um, my uh, assault on the Ultraman World Championship was delayed by by two years. But finally, this past November, I did get the chance to race there. Uh, when I raced in Florida, I I really... I knew the distances and I knew it was going to be overwhelming, but I really had no concept and I made so many mistakes in that race. And so in retrospect, I'm so glad that they made us qualify because I learned so much that I took with me to my trip to, to Hawaii this past November. Um, it's a self-supported race. So you have a crew, you bring a crew with you. Um, and I had a crew, I actually ran with a relatively larger crew in Hawaii. I had a crew of five. Uh, but based on our experience in, in Florida, every single one of my crew members was picked for a very specific reason and had a very specific job to do. Like I, I'm super, as we all are, I mean, some people downplay it, but they still are most triathletes. I'm super anal. So I had this thing planned to a T. Everybody had a job. Everybody had a responsibility. Um, and, and we nailed it. Like I had other athletes like ringing me up and being like, can you rent your crew to me for my next Ultraman? And I was like, wow, it'll cost you. <laughs> Do you have one vehicle for everybody or is it spread out? 
you're only allowed one vehicle on the course. Okay. Yeah, you're allowed one vehicle. Yep. And and so for Hawaii, it's super complicated because at Florida, um, the races in Claremont, we would race and and basically finish in the same spot every day. So we went back to the same house every night. Everything was right there. In Hawaii, we literally race around the island. So for those that are familiar with the big island, we start at the same spot that the Ironman World Championship starts. We start at the pier. Um, and swim down to, to Cuyahoga Bay and exit by the, it used to be the Sheraton, I don't know what it is now, whatever that hotel is down at Cuyahoga. Exit the swim there and then bike up to Volcano. You spend night one in Volcano. Night two, you bike from Volcano, you descend down the other side of the island, you make a right, we biked along the Red Road, doubled back um, through Hilo, all the way around um, uh, to Waimea, descend down to Kauai High and then back up to Javi um, on the Ironman course. You spend night two in Javi and then you run. And this is what got me. This is the one thing that got me into Ultraman when I heard Hillary talk about it. As Ironman athletes, we're all familiar with the turnaround in Javi on the bike and you bike back into town and all the drama that ensues between Javi and Kona, because that's a long way to ride the bike and a lot can happen. That is our run course. We run <laughs> from Javi. <laughs> we run from Javi, the exact same course, down to down to Kauai High, up to the Queen K, all the way along the Queen K, down Makala, but where the bike course turns left by the pool to go to T2, we turn right and finished at the old airport. So that run course was what got me because I was like, that's a bloody long way to ride a bike and we run that. So the complexity of Hawaii is that you're essentially spending a, a night in a different place each night of the race. So yeah, we ended up having to have a big crew vehicle and night three or day three, my bike has to ride in the vehicle as well. So it took a pretty a hefty uh, crew vehicle to, to fit everybody and my bike and all our supplies. Yeah, oh, the logistics we're... are overwhelming. So we're talking about earlier, like the financial side of triathlon. How does that work? Like, is there, is there zero a pro dollars? Field? Yeah, that's what I thought. Zero. So how does it like, obviously it would be attractive to sponsors if they're into like the super long distance stuff. And because you're going to be winning and setting records, like, was it a thing you just did and you're like, I'm losing money on this? Or was there actually like a good payout in some way from it? I mean, honestly, I'm going to uh, sound like such an idiot when I say this my entire triathlon career has been that like I had a good job that paid me a ridiculous amount of money and I didn't have to work that hard. And I chose triathlon. I didn't choose it for the money. I chose it because I love it and I'm happier and I'm healthier and we have enough money. We have less than we would have otherwise. The same thing was true with Ultraman. It's not uh, like on, on paper, any financial advisor would be like, you're an asshole. What are you doing this for? Cause it costs a ridiculous amount of money yeah. Not only to enter, to stay there, the crew, the vehicle, zero prize money. I had some bonuses from sponsors, but a drop in the bucket compared to what I spent. It was a passion project, essentially. But I guess it just sucks for me that that's my physiology and that's what I'm good at. And that's the race I thought I could win. And I went and won it. And, and I'm the world record holder from Florida as well. There's just no prize money, right? Like, Financially on paper, no, it's it's a loss proposition from day one. But for me, 
my entire triathlon career has been a lost proposition compared to the opportunity I had before on Wall Street. But you make your own justifications and rationalizations. Mm-hmm. And to me, I can, I can say I'm a world champion for whatever that's worth. It was worth it to me. It's not yeah. worth it to everybody. It's not worth it to everybody. And you talked about the logistics were difficult. You talked about the distances, but like, how was it? You didn't tell us how it was. How bad did that shit hurt? Honestly, it was uh, like, again, I'm swearing and I'm sorry, mom. It was the fucking greatest thing I've ever done. (laughs) And the reason I knew, and here's the thing. I, so years ago, 2016, I think it was, I had a string of injuries and I wasn't able to run. And they backed up one after the other after the other, and we couldn't really string it together. But I essentially went all of 2016 without running a step because I was injured. And you talk about testing my love for the sport. I was kind of ready to walk away. I just, I was like, this isn't fun anymore. I, I like, I feel like an idiot because I'm just, I'm not adding value in any capacity in the sport. Like I'm just, I'm, I'm baggage. And Julie, my coach, Julie Dibbins, found the 6, 12, 24-hour time trial world championship in Borrego Spring. And she was like, I think you should, you pick the distance. I think you should sign up for this. I think it'll give you something to sink your teeth into. I could bike, no problem. And so I I chose 12 hours because I I like to sleep. I sleep more than most toddlers. I'm a big, big sleeper. So 24 hours biking in the dark wasn't really my jam six hours didn't seem gnarly or epic so I chose 12 because that seemed like a good long ride um but I wouldn't have to lose sleep over it and so I got to maybe hour seven or eight of that and I realized I was like I'm actually like my water's just going up I'm feeling good like I feel great and all of a sudden I had this realization I'm like I think I might be good at this and I'm not really sure I want to be. It was my first <laughs> ultra thing. If you don't consider Ironman to be ultra, which I, I kind of do, but this was more ultra than that. And I was like, I, I have the mindset for it. I'm happy as a clam. Like I just, I was like, I am wired to do this. And that is how Ultraman was for me. It, I'm not going to lie. It was hard. And there were moments where I was like, oh, this kind of sucks. I kind of wish I was done. But really for me, the only time I was really in pain Actually, the swim was really brutal. We had really nasty conditions on the swim. And there were people that were in the water for six hours. The cutoff is six hours. And there were people that came out of the water five hours, 58 minutes. Like, can you even imagine? I I seriously cannot. Like, I was practically to Volcano by then. And they were just getting out of the water. I I, Full credit to the people that were in the water that long. But the, the only time I was really unhappy at any point during the entire race God's honest truth was the last eight from airport to the finish line. It was, it was trying. Like I was like, I'm ready to be done. This hurts. I don't even like, I didn't even want it anymore at that point. Like I knew I was going to win the race pretty much barring disaster, but I just didn't even care anymore. The last eight miles. But when you consider 320 miles and only eight of them sucked. Yeah. Yeah. It was unreal. And and that's to me, like, that's the crying shame. Like I wish there was revenue in Ultraman because I would kill it. That's what I'm, that's what I'm wired for. But unfortunately it is what it is, but Hey, I get to say I'm a world champion and I have a world record. record. Yeah. That's pretty unreal. Um, it's it's a it's a unique skill i i realize and it's i wish i wish my skills were elsewhere like i wish 100k was my bread and butter it's just not (laughs) 
yeah who's is like honestly that distance is oh man it's not they run 100k fast i it's insane like it's insane yeah so okay so the point you got to in the last eight miles sounds like what i got to like eight miles into the bike that i did the one iron man i did um <laughs> but um garrick is doing his first iron man at texas ah. and let's just hear what's your advice for a pro doing their first iron man just what do you think is going to be the thing that's going to get him you give him three good nuggets to take away well, ignorance is bliss, my friend. You only get one shot at your first one. So enjoy not knowing. Like, you're going to be kind of freaked out because you're like, crap, I don't even know what to expect. Enjoy that because it only happens once. Um, my second nugget is going to be figure out your fueling because like, that is going to make or break. Like I, like, I would rather have you skip training sessions to spend time with a nutritionist to figure out how you're going to fuel yourself because fueling and I learned this and it took Ultraman to teach me this after 18 years of being a pro Ultraman made me realize how important fueling is. Yeah. We all talk about it and yeah, it's super important. It's the fourth discipline, blah, 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 yada, yada. No, it's so important. Nail your fueling. Um, and I, yeah, other than that, dude, just show up healthy. Less is more. Like we all say that, like be, you know, 8% undertrained and healthy rather than 1% overtrained and fighting a niggle. That's uh that's my life story right there. <laughs> the 1% overtrained part. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And it's funny, and then... like it's, it's funny because all of my experience in Kona and even now as a commentator, watching the athletes go through their Kona experience and doing all those pre-race interviews, like nothing's changed. Nothing, nothing has changed. Everybody goes into Kona feeling they have to do just this little bit more. Oh, it's the world championship. I have to just, I need the superlative. Um, and the superlative, I remember an interview we did. It was Sebastian Keenlay. It was the year that Jan had his stress fracture and wasn't able to race. And we brought Sebastian in for his pre-race interview. And I remember this so just because it, the line, it, 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 it makes me laugh even to this day because he does it with a thick German accent, which I can't replicate because I'll sound like an ass. But we sat him down and, and we asked all of the pro men, like, what does it mean? Like the fact that Jan's not in the race, how's that going to change the dynamic? What do you know? What do you think? What are your thoughts on Jan? And he just sat there and he shook his head and he said, there's a fine line between fit and fucked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> and it was so brilliant. And to this day, yeah, a hundred percent. Fine line between fit and fucked. Stay on the fit line because fucked is no fun. Oh he my god. Is, he is one of like the wisest athletes, I think. Um, for sure. But what well, the other bit of wisdom I want to get out of you is for a lot of for our listeners, because I've heard a bunch of usually dudes who are like oh man i'm old now and i'm slow and i can't do this or that because i'm 45 and i'm like nick's sitting right there jack yeah i know <laughs> and, always... Jesus. that's just garrick just garrick's on me anyways um obviously for those who don't know dd is is 52 is that correct 52 yeah, years 52. of age and competing yep. like very well at a pro level um what is your kind of advice as from going from say like 40 ish to now, how has your training recovery changed for you to be able to still maintain such a ridiculous level of performance? 
Yeah, people like people, it's funny. People are insanely curious and and at the same time they kind of hate the answer because it it and I all honestly don't like giving the honest answer. Like I wish I could say there was like some magic bullet or some like, you know, fairy dust or I'm just genetically gifted. I'm not. I'm like genetically I'm marginal at best. Like it takes 115% of my focus. Like literally I ate dinner at five o'clock so that I can finish this and go to bed at seven. Like that's, that's my life. There is, there is nothing else. And, and Julie has always like cautioned. She's like, you need to find a balance in your life. But the, the lot, the older I've gotten, the more intense my focus is on triathlon. There is literally almost nothing else. There's my husband and my dogs and triathlon. And when I'm not training or recovering, I'm coaching or I'm commentating and my whole life revolves around it. And it's, it's myopic, but here's the thing. I know that my days are numbered and I want to, I want to suck the life out of every minute I have left because once you're done, you're done and it's going to be over. And I want to enjoy every minute that I have left, but it, it requires that kind of intense focus. Like I'm either resting, I'm doing mobility, I'm doing PT, I'm getting massage, I'm sleeping, I'm, I've had to improve my nutrition. And that's been a real struggle for me. That's been my Achilles heel as an athlete, both as a, a world-class swimmer, I, I swam on the US national team for a number of years. And as I transitioned into triathlon, nutrition has been so difficult for me. Um, strength training, I can't neglect it. I can't go into the gym and be like, oh, I'm kind of tired today. I'm just going to mail this one in. No, 100% gym sessions are as hard as everything else. And I just have to have, everything needs to be perfect. Um, I, I was sort of a perfectionist before, but now everything needs to be absolutely perfect for me to have and have a, even have a chance to just not embarrass myself. Um, oh, but here's the thing. Embarrass no, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. I, I kind of like, I line up anymore. I don't feel pressure. There was a time I had a string of top 10 finishes at the Ironman World Championship. I had three Ironman wins and I felt pressure to perform. I would go into races and be like, oh, like if I don't race well, now I go up and I'm like, fuck, dude, come, come at me. Like, let me see what you got. Like, I have nothing to lose. I have nothing to lose. Like my legacy, and I, it, I sound like an ass for saying that because whatever, I'm just another athlete and I'll be gone and I'll be forgotten as soon as the next one comes along as we all will be. But it's established. Like right now what I'm doing, it's a hundred percent for me. Like it's not for anybody else. I don't feel pressure from sponsors. I don't, I just don't feel pressure anymore. I do it a hundred percent for my love of it. And because I know and to bring us back full circle, it's better than the alternative. It's better than sitting at a desk from seven in the morning until five or six at night. It's way better than that. And and I will take every second that I have left in this sport and, and enjoy the crap out of it and see what is possible because I shouldn't be here. I'm Don't you dare say old. anything is possible. I No, I'm not. And again, I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying that, but I, I am. I am a hundred percent proof of it. There's no other way. I'm not extraordinary. I'm not genetically gifted. I am not some superstar phenom. I'm just figuring out how to do it. And I don't even know that I know what I'm doing, but I'm extremely well coached and I'm extremely disciplined. Um, and I absolutely love what I do. And I'm going to, I'm going to suck the life out of it while I can.
I, I coach an athlete. I'm fortunate enough to, to mention her. Her name's Pam and she's one of your biggest fans, Dee Dee. She's, you know, getting up there and she doesn't stop. She doesn't let anything stop her. Like injury, injuries, niggles. She's had tons and tons of hips and joint and hamstring injuries because she was a life, lifetime gymnast. So you, believe it or not, you are an icon for many women out there who are going through this same ups and downs as you. I mean, she goes through the same types of therapies and I work with her much like um, JD works for you. Like, honestly, yep. we're on the phone trying to figure out which doctor can do which type of treatments to keep her from locking up or having a quad issue or something like that. So I think the message you're sending is, you know, don't, don't get beat down by what's happening and find a way around it. If that wall is two feet high, then you better find a way to make it to where you can leap over it instead. Yep. So I think that yep. the message you're sending is quite strong and, and it's not mundane and it's pretty remarkable. Well, it's, I mean, it's gotta be worth it to you. And, and for a lot of people, it, it ceases to be worth it. Right. And I've been to points in my career, 2016, is this, worth it anymore 2011 when I crashed in Frankfurt and broke literally everything on the left side of my body and was told I'd never race again you have to decide for yourself is it worth it to keep trying and for me up until this point the answer has been yes someday it's going to be no it's going to be like you know what I've had my fill and 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 I've done everything I, I think I can do and there will be a time when it ends but you've just got to decide that for yourself. And for me, it's, it's just not quite yet. And go Pam. Cause it's not time for you either. <laughs> That's stellar. And you know what? The other thing is people need to also accept, like, if it's not worth it, it's not worth it. Like you don't yeah. have to do something for just because it's epic. And just because society tells you, you can never quit. Like it's not worth it. Yeah. Then other things in your life are more important. That's fine too. Um, it's even better. Like you've got to do what makes you happy because if you do this sport and you're not happy, I've seen too many people do it beyond where they're enjoying it. And if like, yes, it's hard and not all of us, we don't always skip out of bed saying, yippee, I have a really hard session today. I can't wait. It's not that there's that level of enjoyment, but if you're not getting the enjoyment out of it, there are so many other things to do in life. So many other things to do. And so many sports that are way easier. Yeah. Well, not, <laughs> I mean, sport. not only that, just, just more enjoyable yeah. for your, for your life. And, and if yeah, this isn't right ball. for you, then it's not right. Oh, yeah. Pickleball. hundred percent. You're still going to be racing pro and all your friends are going to be playing pickleball. <laughs> <for 10 years. laughs> um, Didi, so when's your, when's your book coming out? Oh gosh. No, I don't know. Somebody once, I actually used to have a, um, I did some training back in the day in Austin, Texas, when I lived in Boston, I used to go to Austin before it got super crazy and I had this incredible homestay there. Um, this guy named Scott and he used to drive me crazy cause he was, he was a chatterbox. Um, but he was such a big fan. And back in the day when we all had blogs before we had, before we had TikTok, we had blogs, right? Yeah, your like, race report was like your diary. Yeah. And I was like, I wish we could go back to blogs. Cause I actually am not a bad writer. Like I'm a decent writer and my blog was actually really good. And at one point in my career, it's really sad. Cause Scott had a heart attack on his bike and he died a few years ago. And it just, to this day, yeah. it still makes me so sad, but for Christmas one year, he actually printed out my entire blog, which to that point was like, 
probably 13 or 14 years in the making. And he bound it and put it together in, in a binder for me uh, because he used to love to read it. He used to love my blog. So I do have the foundation, but like I have so many more years left to cover. I don't know. I, it's easier to talk than write. I don't know. I don't know what comes next. I don't know if it's a book. Well, that's a surefire way, surefire way to not be forgotten. That's for sure. Um, Well, I don't know. Nobody has to buy the book. Like it's, you can very easily be forgotten if you have a book. I don't know. I can't forget Maka because his book looks at me and I would love to forget Maka many times. (laughs) Even though I get to see him at Super League now. Um, Yeah. Didi, you've been on with us for much longer than I told you you would be. And I can't thank you now. Garrick, um, Jackson. Bedtime. Yeah. Get to bed and get yeah, that freaking seven rest. o'clock there in Boulder. So yeah, we've, we've yeah. got to get to bed. You and I, um, we can't be up late burn the midnight. Yeah, the, the senior citizen, the senior citizen bedtime, you young bucks can, can go out and whoop it up. <laughs> um, so yeah. Any, any final thoughts before we go, or are you happy with all of that knowledge you just dropped on everybody? Nah, I, <laughs> I, I don't know. Like I, you know, I love the sport. I love sharing my joy of the sport. I get so many, I get equal messages of people who appreciate my passion for the sport and people who are so perplexed that it still exists after all of these years. <laughs> I don't know. It just, it does. And someday it'll end. It'll end for us all, but what a ride it's been. And I'm just enjoying it while it's here. And I've really enjoyed my time with you fine fellows. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks, thanks for not giving up. Thank you. <laughs> but you got to give you us guys our- are awesome. I would say you guys are awesome, and I look forward to, to chatting you up uh, on, on the commentary. Um, and I'll see you at Texas. I'll be at Texas, I think. Knock on wood, if I'm healthy. Good. Yeah, we'll see you in Texas. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got to give us our final out. We usually say peace out, but we say it very Canadian. So on the count of three, we're going to say peace out. Peace out. <laughs> All right, ready? One, two, three. Peace, peace. out. <laughs> Thanks again, Dee. We love you. <laughs> Thank Thanks you, guys. So Thanks so much. I got ish to do. Flying through the sky in my parachute. Dancing on the couch like I'm Tommy Cruise. On a one-man mission trying to see it through.